Second Peter, the chapter 1 and the verse 5. Uh, we're going to break in that this evening. The verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Tonight we want to focus our attention really on the verse 5 down uh, to the end of verse 8. And as we consider these verses together, uh, we do so under the heading, Growing as a Christian. Growing as a Christian. Let's just tell ourselves, ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we bow before thee with thy word now open. And Lord, we just sit at thy feet. And we pray, Lord, that thou wilt teach us. That we will know what it is to hear the voice of God to our hearts tonight. Father, we pray for that settling of mind, even now and of heart, that we will be focused and we will be conscious even of the Lord speaking. Oh, Father, empty us of self and of sin and fill us with thy spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we mentioned the other week in the introductory remarks of this book, the key theme of this second epistle of Peter to the scattered believers is growth. And as we've entered into the epistle, Peter, as Peter always is in his normal character, he doesn't hang about. He doesn't delay in any way. Once he has uh, the introductory remarks really out of the way, and then as we looked at last week, there are some words of greeting, uh, which caused us to consider exactly what a Christian is. And immediately then he gets into the thrust of his uh, theme or of the issue that he really wants to present to the people he enters into words of encouragement. He enters into words of exhortation uh, to the Christians that they need to grow. That they need to go forward. That they cannot simply be stagnant Christians. They cannot be going backward, but rather they are ever to go forward. They're ever uh, to press on. We mentioned something of this even on Sunday morning past. That how our faith is not to stop at the cross. That we're, whilst we're thankful and of course we rejoice in the cross, we glory in the cross work of Christ. But that's not where our faith stops. We then are to move forward. We are to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. We're to go forward even within the faith and to understand more and more of who God is. Understand more and more of what salvation <coughs> is. Understand more and more of who we were and now what we are in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary in Second Epistle, he gave the illustration of your faith being like a farm that has been given to you as a gift. 
So imagine you've been given a farm. Someone has kindly donated you a farm. And on that farm you have all of the barns you need. You have all of the fields that you need. You have all of the sheds and the machinery. You even have the seed in the storehouses ready to be sown. But then you have to go and work that farm. You cannot simply have a farm and do nothing with it. You must go and work. You must go and plant the seed. You cannot simply sit idle. Yes, you may have a farm with equipment potential at your fingertips. But that's it until you go and work it. Of course, even when the farmer works, he still needs the input of light and of water to bring forth the growth. A farmer can put all of the seed in the ground. He can cover it perfectly over. He can do all that he must do, but he still needs the work of that which he is not in control of. In other words, the rain. In other words, the sunshine. And so that reminds us that even within the work of growing our faith and of growing as a Christian, it is a twofold work. It is ourselves in co-labor with the Lord. Growth, of course, is evidence of life. Something that is living grows. Something that is dying shrivels and decays. James 2 and verse 17, the apostle James, he said, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. There must be the cultivation, there must be the work put in, there must be the growth evident even there within your faith. And so Peter, as he brings us into the next section of this epistle, he's really encouraging the child of God to grow. Two things I want to leave with you this evening as we consider these verses. Firstly, the verse 5 through to the end of verse 7, you have the steps that need to be taken. The steps that need to be taken. He begins by saying, beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Important to emphasize from the outset that to be a good Christian and to be a growing Christian is not a one-stop shop. It's not simply that you get one item or one part of it and then you say, well, I now have that and therefore it is all fixed and that's it, done and dusted. Titus 3 in the verse 8, Paul writing to young Titus, he says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that I affirm them constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Plural. He goes on to say, These things, again plural, are good and profitable unto men. There must be good works, plural, coming from the Christian. And so we must work. Even as God works in us, so we must work. And of course, the work of sanctification is that ongoing work within you and I by the Holy Spirit. But alongside that work, we must work. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In verse 13, it goes on to say, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So Peter, he begins in these verses with a list of steps. And as he begins to give you the list of steps that need to be followed, he explains why we must have these steps and why we must work. He begins the verse and he says, and beside this, well, sometimes, and it's important to highlight this, whilst we believe and we hold the King James Version is the best translation possible. There are times when maybe the wording or the English that we would use today is not the English that they used 
back in the time of translation. Because whenever it says, and beside this, what he really is saying is, and because of this. Well, then you have to ask the question, because of what? And so you go back one verse. And the verse four, he says, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so why do we need to have steps? Why does there need to be this working even by ourselves in our Christian faith? Because we've escaped the corruption of the world. Because we're now partakers of divine nature. That's why we must work. That's why we need to take these steps. He goes on then to say, add to your faith virtue. Again, maybe adds not the best English word that could have been used at the time. Maybe it meant that different item even within the time of translation. <coughs> because the original Greek word here for add is epikorego. Epikorego is only used five times in scripture. The other four times it's always translated as minister. And so what Peter's really saying is minister to your faith. In other words, nourish your faith, feed your faith, care for your faith. Not simply add to it. We have to, we want our faith to grow. Then we have to nourish it. We want our faith to grow, then we have to give food to it. You want a plant to grow at home, you'll nourish it. You'll give it that water, you'll give it that plant feed. You want a child to grow, you'll give it food. You'll nourish that child and you'll seek to see that child grow even by the nourishment, by the food that you give to it. I'm sure in the past you've maybe heard of individuals, some Christians, or so-called Christians maybe, and they will say that once they're saved, well, then they can live as they please. As long as they've got forgiveness of sin, they'll say, well, I'm not under the law and therefore I don't have to follow rules. And I can just do what I want because I'm saved. Well, if that's the case, then why does God and his word keep giving us checklists? Why does God keep giving us lists in the Bible that we are to follow? Whether that be the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Whether it be Paul's list even to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, the verse 21 to 26. Or even... Here with Peter, there's seven steps are presented to us. Always remember, as we mentioned before, we are ambassadors. We are representatives of Christ on earth. Whenever we're saved and we're brought into the family of God, we are his ambassadors, we are representatives, we are individuals that show forth Christ. Individuals who show forth Christianity. So therefore we cannot simply live as we please. We have to live in accordance with God's word. I read on one occasion in Moody Church over in Chicago and in the past there's a little article they used to produce called the Moody Monthly. One occasion they gave in that little Moody Monthly one time they spoke of how the Christian attitude and the Christian character and they refer to it as a Christian garden. And within the Christian garden there ought to be certain things. You have it within your garden that you're growing. They said first of all plant five rows of peas. Preparedness, promptness, perseverance, politeness 
and prayer. Next to them, plant, plant three rows of squash. Squash gossip, squash criticism, and squash indifference. Then beside the squash, then plant five rows of lettuce. Let us be faithful. Let us be unselfish. Let us be loyal. Let us be truthful and let us love one another. And then it finished with these words, and no garden is complete without turnips. Turn up for church. Turn up with a smile. And turn up with determination. And you can see even that simple way that Moody was bringing it out. The great desire and the great need even for that list to follow. That we have those items within our life. That more and more we cultivate them. Peter's list here of seven characteristics. He never once claims that you can have them all in one go. It isn't a case that you go to the shop and you say right I need all seven items. And you get them off the shelves and you say right that's me sorted. Because even as he enters into it he says add to your faith. In other words nourish your faith with virtue and then to nourish your virtue nourish it with knowledge and he goes on down through the list nourish your knowledge with temperance and etc etc right down through the seven in other words to have one perfected you need the next one the first here that mentioned is virtue to nourish your faith You need a moral uprightness. You need a holy energy. That's what virtue is. You need a holy zeal within you. You need a desire and a determination for purity. To be as holy as it's possible to be. He tells us even here in this verse. He says with giving all diligence. In other words doing your very utmost. Where each one of us were living as Christ would live. That's what our desire ought to be as Christians. We ought to desire to speak as Christ would speak. We ought to desire to act as he would act. To walk where he would walk. As I mentioned before, Peter states in the first epistle, Be ye holy. Why? Because he is holy. You want your faith nourished with Christ. You want it nourished in that holy zeal of virtue. Then to nourish virtue, Peter says you need knowledge. After all, zeal, holy zeal, without knowledge is dangerous. Individuals today are filled with zeal. But yet they have no knowledge of God. And their zeal, that enthusiasm, can lead them down dangerous paths. You need knowledge. Knowledge of the will of God. Knowledge of the word of God. You want to know more perfectly how to live, then you need to know more of the book. You want to know what's acceptable and unacceptable for a Christian to be involved in, then you need to get into the book. You need to follow through the life of Christ. You need to go through the Gospels. You need to go through the epistles as Peter, Paul, James, John, they write to the various churches. You need to go through the Old Testament. Every single book from Genesis to Revelation, it brings us more and more knowledge of who God is. How did Paul know he was to go to Rome? Because God spoke to him. The will of God was revealed to Paul when God spoke to him. How do we know the will of God for our lives? When God speaks to us, where does God speak to us? In his word. We need to furnish 
We need to nourish our virtue, our zeal with knowledge. And then to, ver- to nourish our knowledge, we need temperance. Temperance is self-control. It's that ability to take charge of your emotions. Proverbs 16 to verse 32, it says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Proverbs 25 verse 28, it says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. How important it is to have self-control. And of course, the more that we know of Christ, the more that we seek to live like Christ, the more self-control you'll have. After temperance then comes patience. Patience, in other words, is being long-suffering. See, that's the difference really between temperance and patience. Temperance is handling the pleasures of life. Patience is handling (coughs) the pressures of life. And if you can handle the one, it usually means you can handle the other. Sadly, the one who gives in to pleasure usually gives up in pressure. The one who has no self-control then has no ability to stand and endure in the times of hardship. The more patience that is there, then it feeds and it nourishes godliness. Godliness, very simply, is a God-likeness. It's one who has a reverence towards God. It doesn't just mean as you come into the church, but a reverence towards God in every part and place of life. Not one who's overwhelmed by petty matters. Not one who's overwhelmed and filled with passions and pressures, but rather one who seeks to serve the Lord and to do the Lord's will in every situation I'm sure there's times you've maybe heard of the snowflake generation how just individuals nowadays just can get pushed around as it were and their emotions are all over the place well Christians aren't to be like that even in the very worst of situations in the very worst of trials that we still seek to serve the Lord even in the trials now we still seek to praise the Lord even in the trials Now you think of Job. You think of the trials that came upon Job. Job chapter 1. All of that heartache, losing all of his children. All of the upset, losing his whole farm, his income, everything's gone. And yet Job 1 finishes with a wonderful statement. It tells us in Job 1.22. It says, in all this. Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Everything that happened to him, and of course that wonderful verse, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And everything that happened to Job, he sinned not. Why? Because he was godlike. He was godly. He worshipped the Lord even in the very worst of circumstances. Then next to godliness comes brotherly kindness. Peter here, as he goes on in the list, verse 7, to godliness, brotherly kindness. The more godly we are, 
the easier it's going to be to love one another. Certainly when you look at Peter, his discipleship days, brotherly kindness was in short supply. He, along with the other disciples, constantly at each other's throat, constantly trying to batter each other and get ahead of each other, having discussions, who's the greatest disciple, who is the one who's closest, who is the one that the Lord turns to the most, constantly trying to have one step ahead of the rest of them. Not led to arguments. What a difference there is between Peter the disciple and Peter the apostle. He's willing as an apostle to go to Cornelius, a Gentile's house. He's willing to do all that he could for the unity of the church. He never once pushed himself to the fore. You know, you think of it, who we believe to be the first moderator of the church in Jerusalem was James. Not Peter. And yet we went through this, actually, we mentioned it to young people on Friday night. If you go to the list of the disciples and apostles, the list of disciples in Matthew, it tells us that the first was Peter. Peter was a leader. And yet when he comes to the apostle in the time of the church, he never pushes himself to the fore. And here he's writing to the church and he says, to our godliness, we need brotherly kindness. We need brotherly love in the church. That's what he says even back in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. He says, Seeing ye have on, or purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And it's interesting, you go through all of the different our apostles and all of the different epistles that are written. Every single apostle that writes an epistle tells them to love one another. Hebrews 13 and 1, let brotherly love continue. Romans 12 and verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. The apostle John then in his epistle, 1 John 5 and the verse 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. In other words, loving the brethren. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And so there you have the Apostle Paul. There you have the Apostle Peter. There you have the Apostle John. They're all bringing the same thing. You need to love one another. You need to be kind to one another. You need to do all you can for one another. And to that brotherly kindness, the end of verse 7, is charity. Charity, of course, is the word that's used so often in New Testament Scripture for love. We are to furnish our love with brotherly kindness. And remember, let me just highlight this in passing, the brotherly love and the love here that's mentioned amongst believers is a sacrificial love. Because the word for charity here is agape. 
Agape love is the type of love that Christ had for the sinner. It's the love that took Christ to the cross. Christ was willing to go and to sacrifice himself and to go under the wrath of God because he loved us. It's agape. Sacrificial love. That's the love that we are to have one for another. We are to be willing to sacrifice, to love one another. We're to love our brethren and our sisters in spite of the differences. Because Christ loved us in spite of our sin. We're to love our brethren and our sisters in spite even of what we may deem as failures. Or as problems. We're to love them. That's what all of the apostles are bringing to us time and again under inspiration of the Spirit. We are to love one another. Isn't it wonderful to have all of these steps? We want to grow as a Christian. And we have this step, we have this checklist to follow. When you look at the list, as I said, you could never master or hold them all in one go. You need the one to strengthen the next. And so we are to work at our faith. The steps that are needed. And secondly and finally, verse 8, the success that is promised. The success that is promised. Verse 8, for if these things be in you, and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the greatest hope of success that we can have personally as Christians? It's to be like Christ. Robert Murray McShane, that's what he prayed, Lord, make me as holy as it's possible for a saved sinner to be. And all of these, if all of these characteristics, if they abound in us, not simply one or two of them, but if we work at the one and we move through the steps and we furnish the next with the one before and we work and we work and we abound in them, not simply making a little glimmer of light, not simply just holding on to one step and saying, well, I'm at step one, I'm going no further. But if we work after work after work and we abound in the characteristics I we get to know Christ. Our knowledge of Christ will grow. I think of that little chorus. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All that I ask. Is to be like him. And the more Christ like we are the more knowledge of Christ we will have and the more use we will be to the Spirit in the service of God. You know when it says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, of how the foolish things, the weak things, confound the wise and the mighty? Speaking of individuals who may be foolish, yes, in the eyes of the world, but they're wise unto salvation. It's Christians who have a knowledge of their Saviour. It's Christians who are abounding in the characteristics of growth. 
It's Christians that have godliness, that have brotherly kindness, that have knowledge, that have temperance, that have patience. It's Christians that are abounding. Always remember each one of these characteristics is in you and I already. Because we're partakers of the divine nature. But they need to be cultivated. They need to be worked on it. They need to be chipped away at, polished up, as it were, to bring them forth within us. Salvation brings us into Christ. Christ bring, salvation brings Christ into us. And so the divine nature is there, but we need to work to remove, and as it were, to die more and more on the self, on the sin, to get rid of the blemishes, to get rid of those things that we've held on to from the old, old nature, and to live more in Christ. We want to grow. Yea, we need to grow. And there's a work to be done in our lives. Even as the Spirit of God works in us, we need to work. May it be the desires of all of our hearts that we will work. That we will grow. That we will not be barren or unfruitful. You know, you look at verse 9, what a contrast. Verse 8, you have the abounding of the characteristics. You have a wealth. You're no longer barren or unfruitful. You have the wealth of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, verse 9, what a pitiful picture that is. An individual who is blind and cannot see. individual that's forgotten he's been purged from his old sins oh I trust none of us fit into verse 9 I trust none of us desire to but rather that each one of us are willing to work to take that myrrh as it were put it up the scriptures up before us to start, even with step one, and just work and work and work at them, and then add from one to the next, that we may abound in each one of them. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening.